Well, in some ways, my sermon this morning is kind of simple. Many of you probably have heard it before. Not many will be thinking this is new to me. But my eager hope and expectation is that God will use it to strengthen you and stimulate you to persevere in this walk. Because you don't have to be a Christian for very long before you discover that you know, this life, this life as a Christian is not, it's not always easy. All right. We're always being met with difficulties on every side. It's always trying our faith. And through them all, you really have, as a professing follower of Christ, you have two options before you in every trial you meet. And those options are apostasy or perseverance. Those are the two options you have before you. And that's the title of my sermon, actually, those two options, apostasy or perse- perse- perseverance. And uh, which will you choose? So I thought it would be helpful to read of an occasion in the life of Jesus where we see both of these realities on full display. Uh, so we'll be turning to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We'll be focusing on the last five verses, but before I read them, I'll give you some context just to summarize what's going on in chapter 6. Jesus and his disciples have just landed on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is also the Sea of Tiberias, also the Lake of Genesaret. goes by multiple names. The previous day, they were on the other side teaching, and we read in verse 2 of chapter 6 that Jesus starts amassing a large crowd. They start following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. And that evening comes, and uh, it's the Passover feast, so Jesus performs an amazing miracle. He takes five loaves and two fishes, and he feeds 5,000 men. It was an amazing miracle. And then the evening comes, sun goes down, and his disciples get in the boat, set sail for the north shore to, towards Capernaum. And Jesus walks out on the water to them, meets them in the boat, and he gets in the boat, and they arrive to where they were sailing to. Then the next day comes, and those who were on the other side the previous day, who ate the loaves, who ate the fishes, they want to follow Jesus. So they, they travel towards Capernaum, and they find him there. They find Jesus and his disciples, and they're a little confused because Jesus was not in the boat with them at the start. But then they see him there, and they say, Jesus, when did you arrive here? And Jesus does something that's so unexpected to us. I mean, I think if, if, if I was in that position as the, as the disciples were, I'm, I'm thinking, like, this is amazing. People are traveling for miles around asking questions about Jesus. And I think if, if we're honest, if, if 5,000 people walked for miles around here to come to church on Sunday asking questions about Jesus, we would all assume that some mass revival has just broken out. <laughs> we just would. <laughs> but Jesus does something so unexpected. He, he calls them out and says, you didn't come here because of me. You came here because you ate the loaves and fishes yesterday. And he tells them to not labor for the food which perishes, but that in, which endures, that he will give them. 
And so then he launches into this teaching where he, we could call it a sermon. He launches into this teaching where he likens himself to the bread, the manna that came down from heaven. And he says that he is the true bread that gives life to the world. And, and unless if you eat of this bread, you have no life in yourselves. And we know he's not talking literally here like transubstantiation because they ask him, what is the work of God that we must do? And he says, believe on me. So the eating and the drinking that he's referring to is belief. And, uh, and in this sermon, there's two streams of truth coming right at us very strongly. you got man's responsibility. Say, you must believe on me. If you don't, you have no life in yourself. And you also have God's sovereignty over salvation coming really heavy through this chapter. He says in 44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And so this is hard for them to receive. And they complain about themselves, saying this is uh, hard to listen to. Who can receive it? And Jesus doesn't all of a sudden try to water it down, make it more palatable. He doubles down on it, actually, and says, this is why I told you that no one can come unless it's been granted to him by the Father. And then this brings us to our text this morning, starting in verse 66. We read, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you, is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Amen. Well, that is the word of the Lord. The first thing that we can't help but observe in this passage is the reality of apostasy. And that is my first uh, main heading in my sermon, the reality of apostasy. You see it right there in verse 66. They were complaining that his teaching was hard. And it wasn't hard in the sense that it was too complicated or difficult to understand. But hard in the sense that it was offensive to receive. That's why Jesus says, I mean, do you take offense at this? So it was hard in that way. Jesus and his teaching finally become so repugnant to them that they finally Turn back in 66, and we read that many of his disciples turned back and walked with him, walked with him no longer. How's that for a a church growth model? (laughs) I think if Jesus was on staff in 90% of the churches in America today, he'd probably be fired. Thousands of people turning away. (laughs) But he knows what he's doing. So how do we make sense of when someone falls away. Or we might say apostasy. That's a fancy word to describe what these people did. Uh, Today, you hear a lot of stories of deconversion, ex-evangelicals or people who deconstruct their faith. 
Well, that is what we read about right here in verse 66. So how do we make sense of what's going on? This doesn't, this doesn't seem simple. Jesus just, Jesus just said in his sermon earlier in this chapter that all who come to him he won't cast out and that he won't lose any that the Father has given him. So what's going on in chapter 6? Was Jesus wrong? Because it seems that actually the opposite happened. Many people turned away. And, and perhaps you know someone in your life, maybe a Christian who is very influential, a teacher or a friend, who at one time was professing and they turned away. And that can be distressing for a lot of Christians. I mean, for young believers, it can cause them to have a crisis of faith sometimes. So we need to understand apostasy. How do we make sense of it? In my estimation, there's two ways that people really can go wrong here. I'll cover those two ways, and then I'll give you a more biblical understanding what to make of apostasy. Well, the first way I think people can go wrong is the Arminian view of perseverance. They, they might hold that it's possible that someone who has the gift of eternal life can lose that gift. They might think that these people in John chapter 6 were at one time saved, and when they turned away, they lost that salvation. Well, I hold that that is an unbiblical view. Um, yeah, it, I, in fact, I will say, if that was the case, if it was true that even one person were to have at one time the gift of eternal life and the next day lose that, what Jesus says here in this chapter makes no sense. Uh, in fact, Jesus would be a failure doing his Father's will. Because he says, this is the will of him who sent me, and I've come to do his will, that of all he's given me, I lose none, but raise him up on the last day. And not only would Jesus be a failure, but he would be found to be a liar. Because in another place, he says, I always do that which is pleasing to my Father. I always do my Father's will. But if Jesus failed to do his Father's will here, then he's lying when he says he always does his Father's will. And if he's a liar, then he's a sinner. And if he's a sinner, then he is not God. And he can't be anyone's sinless sacrifice. He can't save anyone. But the good news is that Jesus isn't a liar. He isn't a failure. He is the Son of God. He's the bread that came down from heaven. And he is the Lord of glory. And what the people said about him was true. He does all things well. And that includes saving his people from their sins, just like the angel predicted, without fail. So that is good news. Uh, so that's the first way that I think people misunderstand those times when people fall away. That's the first misunderstanding. But the opposite error is equally bad. Some people might read an account like this and think that these people turned away, but they were still saved at the end of the day. Uh, that's a, a teaching you see in uh, this easy believism, sometimes free grace theology, where, where people might teach and believe that uh, a professing Christian can turn their back on Christ, even be an atheist, 
And all they really lose at the end of the day is just some secondary reward they might otherwise have received in heaven, but that they're still saved. I would say that that is equally wrong. That's wrong. (laughs) Because it doesn't take the warnings of Scripture seriously at all. It really doesn't doesn't really revere the word of God. What, what I read in this word is, you know, uh, take heed lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to depart from the living God. And what else? We have come to We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's what Hebrews says. So you must endure. If you turn away, it's not a matter of losing some secondary reward. You're not getting in, period. So this is serious. And praise God, he has given us the Holy Spirit who works in us both to will and to work his good pleasure The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. So that's an equally wrong view. So so what do we make of it then when someone apostatizes? Well, a better way to understand this that we must conclude is that those people who fall away don't lose their salvation because they never had it to begin with. And that is evident in our text this morning. Think of when verse 70, Jesus says to the 12, and yet one of you is a devil. And John goes on to provide his own commentary on why Jesus said this, verse 71. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. So the explanation for Judas's future apostasy is found right here. One of you is present tense a devil, a child of the devil. Jesus is not teaching that one of you will fall into becoming a child of the devil in the future, but one of you is currently not mine. And this is why Judas falls away. So Jesus is providing them with the necessary category in their mind to understand that apostasy. Uh, And John certainly learned this. That's why he goes on in his first epistle uh, to say that those who went out from us were not of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out that it might be evident that none of them were of us. So John uh, learned this. So realizing this now, having a more biblical understanding uh, of apostasy, realizing this helps us in a couple ways. It doesn't cause us to lose hope or be surprised when it does happen. You know, I had the, the thought this past week, right? How would I respond or how would you respond if, uh, if every Christian friend you knew And every preacher you ever benefited from, what if they turned away from Christ? What would you do? Would you want to go as well? Um, 
you know, a couple of years ago, I ran into a young man who at one time made a profession of faith and it looked really promising. And he was baptized, he was added to the church, and then he kind of disappeared. And I ran into him and uh, asked how he was doing. And he said he'd sadly gone back to his old ways. And I asked him, what happened? Why? And the reason he gave was that there was an older Christian friend who was very influential in his life that was placed under church discipline for sexual immorality. And he learned of his friend's hypocrisy. And he was so discouraged, he concluded that it all must be false. And he turned away as well. But we ought not be surprised if there is any uh, Judases. Even Jesus had a Judas among them, right? And we know that that is a reality, that the wheat is, grows along with the tares. So when you understand the reality of apostasy, you actually can stand firm uh, in your faith. You can say, let God be true and every man a liar. And actually, Jesus is telling them what he's telling them. One of you is a devil. So that when it does come to pass, they won't be so discouraged, but rather be strengthened in their faith. We read that later on in John. He says, I tell you this before it happens so that when it does come to pass, you will believe that I am he. And also, when we have a biblical understanding of this reality, it should cause us to examine ourselves. We ought to make sure that we are not next. Uh, we want to take this seriously. And uh, maybe it's worth just praying right now that none of us would be found to be Judas. Father, I just pray that you would keep us faithful, firm to the end, Lord, that there would be no Judases or Demases among us, Lord. Keep us walking after you. Amen. So we ought to examine ourselves. But what would I even look for in my self-examination? What would be the red flag that says, warning, I'm in danger of falling away? And that brings me to my second point. So we've already looked at the reality of apostasy in verse 66. And now we have in our text a, a sort of spiritual diagnosis of those who fall away. It's in verse 67. Let's, let's continue reading. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Have some water. What does that question imply about those who went away? That they wanted to. He says, do you want to go as well? So they left because they wanted to. And I know that sounds like an overly simplistic statement, like they apostatized because they wanted to. <laughs> but I do think there is an interesting connection here that Jesus is making between the desires, the wants, and the choices that we make the decisions that we follow. And sometimes, talking about this reality of apostasy, the topic of free will gets brought up a lot. 
And so I want to ask you a question today. Does mankind have free will? But before anyone shouts out your answer, don't answer that. (laughs) Um, Because it's a loaded question. There's important assumptions baked into it. I mean, you'd have to first define what it even is biblically to have free will. So I'm, I'm going to refer to a book written by Jonathan Edwards where he dives into this topic. And so I'll give you the whole title. It's a long one, so buckle up. It's called Freedom of the Will, A Careful and Strict Inquiry into the modern prevailing notions of that freedom of the will, which is supposed to be essential to moral agency, virtue and vice, reward and punishment, praise and blame. (sighs) Okay. By Jonathan Edwards. Uh, That's my reading for the year. (laughs) R.C. Sproul, though, uh, if you want a easily digestible, summarized view, he has a book called Chosen by God, and he has a chapter in it where he nicely summarizes the position. And I agree with the position. Um, I think it's biblical. But he defines what the will is, which is helpful. And he says it's this. It's simply the ability to choose what we want. That's it. So to have free will, biblically speaking, right, is to be able to choose according to our desires. And so our desires, you see, are the foundation of all our decisions. The choices you and I make are not independent. They're not free in that sense. They have a cause. And Edwards goes further than that, and he says that man is not only free to choose what he wants, but he must choose what he desires. And he says the will always chooses according to its strongest inclination at that moment. Which is interesting, because humans are complex creatures. What makes us complex is we've got competing desires within us. And uh, whichever one is strongest at that moment is the one you will go with. Uh, So here's an example for you. Maybe you're trying to think of a possible scenario in your mind wherein you choose something that you actually don't want to do. So, for instance, maybe you don't want to go to work tomorrow, right? You'd rather call in, or maybe if you're a bad employee, just don't show up. No call, no show. Uh, But please don't do that. Uh, (laughs) But you end up deciding to go to work anyways. So on the surface, it looked like you chose something that you didn't want to do. Did we just disprove Edward's position on the will? It might seem like that at first, but... I would say no. The reality was there was competing desires within you all along. On the one hand, you had the desire to not go to work. And on the other, you were faced with the potential side effects, the negative consequences if you fail to show up. You could get fired. You could get reprimanded. So you've got competing desires there. If your desire to skip out on work outweighs your desire to... uh, get fired, then you won't go to work. But if your desire to keep your job outweighs your desire to miss work, guess what? You're going into work tomorrow. It's as simple as that. 
And so in that way, the will is not free. But it is in bondage. That's why Luther wrote bondage of the will. Uh, You see, it's bound with the, the chain of desire that springs forth from the heart. And you see, the problem with unregenerate man is that he's got an unregenerate heart. And so, yes, he freely chooses the things that he wants to do. But the things that he wants to do are contrary to God. He's got a heart that's deceitful above everything else. Lost mankind desires everything and anything under the sun except God. So he cannot, therefore, choose God. He cannot come to Christ. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And in the miracle of regeneration is that when God intervenes, he gives them a new heart, and its greatest desire is now himself. It's Christ. And so now they choose him, not against their will, but according to their renewed will. So I don't believe in a free will. I believe in people's wills being set free. Um, And uh, so these people that we read about in John chapter 6, they turned away from Christ. And it was because they were never born again, and that's evidenced by Jesus not being their greatest desire, but some other thing, perhaps some secondary benefit he offered them. And in fact, we, we read that earlier on in the chapter. Jesus called them out and said, you didn't come here because of me. It was because you ate the loaves and the fish. So some other thing was their greatest desire. That's their problem right there. So we've seen the grim reality of apostasy in verse 66. And we considered it's a spiritual diagnosis in a way, verse 67. And that brings me to my third point. And that is the contrast of the Christian's response. So verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Jesus asks him, do you want to go? And Peter responds with a rhetorical question. To whom shall we go? And the obvious implied answer is that there is no one else. There is nowhere else I can go. And when you've been born again, when you've truly tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you've seen Jesus for who he is, you can't help but love him. He's your greatest desire. You can't help but follow him. The love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. You are dead to this world. How can you go anywhere else? He's your everything. When, when he is your everything, you begin to speak like Joseph to Potiphar's wife. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? How can I? You begin to reason like Peter here. How can I go anywhere else? When Jesus, he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He's the living bread that came down from heaven to give life to my soul. He's my portion. And he has the words of eternal life, meaning outside of him there is no life to be had whatsoever. 
In other words, give me Jesus or I die. That's it. Those are my only two options. So what do you mean? Do I want to go? I can't. That's the Christian response that lies somewhere deep in the heart. And if you're his, you, you know something of that. That's inside of you. You, you experienced that. And so I ask you, brethren, what say you? When things get hard, when trials and tribulations come your way and everyone else around you turns back and they prove to be treacherous and and your own mind solicits the thought to your heart, do you want to go away too? How do you respond to that? Can you go anywhere else? Well, if you can't, then praise God, you're a Christian. And you will persevere. You won't apostatize. And Christ himself will see to it that you make it to the end. He won't lose you. And he will raise you up on the last day. Amen. Uh, Well, I want to comment on something. Because I realize this. There could be someone here today listening, right, who has a very sensitive conscience. Maybe you're overly given to a state of morbid introspection, and you begin to reason like this, well, how can I be a Christian? How can that be true of me? If Jesus was my greatest desire, why would I ever still fall into sin? Wouldn't I never sin if that was true? Wouldn't I I always choose for Jesus? And so people who reason that way, they're left to either fall into being totally proud and blind, thinking they don't sin anymore, but more than likely they will end up in utter despair and conclude that they're just not a Christian, so why even try? I would be quick to point out to you, though, that it isn't the total absence of sin that defines the Christian life. You know, perhaps you've done something you regret, you wish you could take back, but you can't take it back. It's in the sin. It's in the past. And uh, so, what are you going to do about it? That's what defines the Christian life. Uh, so we've already seen in Peter's response in verse sixty-eight, it was a wonderful answer, wasn't it? But he was wrong in one way. He was using the word we. He was taking it upon himself to speak for the whole group. But clearly, not everyone in that group had the same perspective as Peter did. Because we read in verse 70 and 71, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon, Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So you look at those two men. These are the two disciples that the apostle John calls out by name in these five verses. You've got Peter and you've got Judas. And what's interesting is that they're actually very similar in a certain way. Judas, we know that he fell away. He apostatized. He, He played the part well. He fooled the other 11. But we know that he, in all honesty, could not say the same response as Peter did. And so you have these two men, 
who have two totally different responses to that question, two different hopes in themselves. And what's interesting is that moving forward from this time, both Peter and Judas, in a way, they, they both betrayed Jesus. Judas, we know, sold him for 30 pieces of silver. But, you know, Peter adamantly denied him three times out of fear of a little servant girl. He disowned him with cursing. So that was also an act of betrayal in a way, was it not? And yet one of them was restored and the other is in hell to this day. And what was the difference between them? It wasn't the total absence of sin that defined the Christian life, but what they did with it. Look at Judas. He felt bad for what he did. He wept bitterly over his sin. And what should he have done at that point? What, what ought to have been his response? I mean, Jesus had told his disciples, I'm going to die and three days later I'll rise from the dead. I mean, he should have just waited three days for Jesus to, to rise again. And I believe that if Judas sincerely came to Jesus like Peter did and said, Lord, have mercy on me. I, I, I sinned against you. I, I believe that Jesus would have forgiven Judas. He would have. But rather, that's not what Judas did. How did he try to deal with the guilt of his sin? He tried to pay it back himself, for one. He, he tried to offer the money back, right? And it didn't work. It didn't take away the guilt, so what did he do after that? He wallowed in self-pity and he went out and hung himself. And that field is called the field of blood to this day. What a tragic story. But then on the other hand, we read of Peter who similarly betrayed Jesus in a way and he wept bitterly over his sin. But what did he do about it? Unlike Judas, who was trying to run away from Christ. Peter couldn't get to Christ fast enough. When he was in that boat and he sees Jesus walking on that shore, he recognizes him. And yes, he feels ashamed, he feels guilty, but there he is. He's the only one who can heal my broken soul. He's got the words of eternal life. I know that the Lord is slow to anger, full of compassion, and there he is, he's not far away from me, he's on that shore. And so what does Peter do? I mean, shamelessly, he, he just takes the plunge and swims. He can't even row the boat to shore fast enough. He's getting out and swimming to that shore just to get to his Savior. You know, earlier on, he had said these words in our text this morning, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And now, in Peter's life, he's putting his money where his mouth is, right? And sure enough, what is the result for Peter that he finds? Jesus wonderfully restored him and showed him mercy that day. And so, brethren, we can always run to Jesus. And so I just want to exhort you all this morning to have that same mindset in yourselves so that when the question comes along your way, do you want to go away as well? How will you respond? Will you respond with these words, Lord, to whom shall I go? 
You have the words of eternal life, and I have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen, that's all I, that's all I got for you, brethren. Jesus is a wonderful Savior. Let's pray. Father, I, I'm so thankful for this Savior that we read about. That You've given us the living bread from heaven, Jesus. And You've told us that if we take Him in by faith, if we believe on Him, find our daily sustenance in Him, that we have eternal life. Father, what, what grace you've shown us. And I'm just so thankful for, for Christ. I pray that you would strengthen our, our resolve to follow him. Lord, would this be our response? Where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. And uh, we're so thankful for you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.